Welcome to episode 183 of the Variation Sundry Podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined live in our virtual studio on the internet with my good friend, my colleague, my co-host, and the man who is wearing some sort of checked pattern shirt today, mm -hmm. John Scott Sloat. Doc, what's happening? Well, we are finally here. We've been talking about our uh, our upcoming interview with uh, with Brian Rosner, uh, who authored our summer read, and we'll introduce him in just a minute. But uh, yeah, let's go ahead and jump right in. Let me do our basic kind of. Uh, if you want to talk to, uh, reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter at VNS Pod. You can email the show various and sundry podcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and we are on YouTube. And of course, we'd love for you to leave us a review and a five-star rating. So, all right, got that out of the way. Let's go ahead and bring in our special guest for today. We are joined by Dr. Brian Rosner. And I will just hit some of the highlights of his uh, lengthy um, biography here. He is currently serving as the principal of Ridley College in Melbourne, uh, Australia. Now, now, Brian, you're going to have to help out our American listeners because when we hear principal, we think of a uh, more of like a secondary school or a or primary school. But what what is the role of a principal in at Ridley College? Uh, principal, yeah. Thanks, Matt. Hi, John. Yeah, I think uh, principal in in American uh, in the American system will be the president and the provost combined. So, which sounds like a lot of work, and I'm here to tell you it is. So, so my main skill is juggling, basically. Um, yeah. I'm still trying to be a scholar and, and write and speak, but I've also got a bunch of other things to do. Most of the balls are in the air at the moment, but occasionally I drop a few. Yes, yes, that does sound like an exhausting amount of administrative work. So, <laughs> um, and then, uh, so you earned a THM from Dallas Theological Seminary, and mm -hmm, then did your PhD at Cambridge. Yep. So actually, I was just there last, or actually a couple weeks ago at Tyndale House for about a week. So yeah, in your Cambridge own shopping grounds. Three, three years in Cambridge is enough to ruin the rest of your life, really, because uh, <laughs> not, nothing compares after that. It I is beautiful. Agree, Matt. Such a beautiful place. It is. It is. So, so is it safe to say you choose Cambridge over Dallas? Is that a safe, <laughs> safe assumption? Uh, Look, I still have some friends in Dallas, so I'm, I'm going to go no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Probably wise. Uh, and then you uh, you served as a lecturer in New Testament at the at, at uh, University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Um, then you went on to uh, more theological college where you taught uh, New Testament and ethics. And how long have you been there at Ridley? Uh, 11 years in uh, a week's time. So it's really flown by, but... Uh, yeah, I wasn't expecting to head this way, um, but the, the role they were after was what you might call a scholar principle. So I'm well supported mm -hmm. and uh, still want to engage in, in writing and, and speaking. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, um, let's go ahead and uh, dive right in to uh, this book that we've been focusing on. Uh, we will talk a little bit maybe at the end about some of the other books that you've written, uh, but let's talk about uh, your book, How to Find Yourself, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer. And so let's just start with um, what prompted you to write this book? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's actually my second book on what you might call the topic of personal identity. Mm -hmm. First one was called Known by God, A Biblical Theology of Personal Identity. And the, the prompt was quite personal, uh, which I guess is appropriate for the topic. Mm -hmm. So in the late 90s, I was still in Scotland uh, teaching at the University of Aberdeen, as you mentioned. And I had what you might call an identity crisis of sorts. Uh, I remember um, quite um, uh, distinctly sitting in the car in the middle of a Scottish winter waiting for the uh, windscreen to demist. I reached up and looked in the rearview mirror and, and kind of wondered who it was for a few moments. Hmm. So uh, things were not going well. And um, it, 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 I, I did come back to that basic question, who am I? 
And uh, being a Christian, I, I went back to the Bible and knowing God had always been a really important truth for me, but that there was a real comfort and reassurance in the Bible's notion that God gives us an identity as his children by knowing us intimately and personally. So the, the sense was that if I didn't know who I was, there was this, uh, uh, this beautiful notion that, that God knows me still. Hmm. Yeah, so it goes back to the very personal um, uh, experience. And I, I, I tell students that uh, if you want to do a PhD and become a scholar, you've got to have a very high boredom threshold. So I've been, I've been chewing on this bone for 25 years, basically. And uh, it's been a great journey and really personally beneficial. And, and thankfully, it's been of help to others as well from, from what I've heard. Uh, Brian, you're, so I, identity formation, personal identity formation is a, is a large part of the book. The other part is um, breaking down what you call expressive individualism. Uh, when was the first time you came across that term and uh, how have you seen that uh, that concept develop over the last several years? It, well, I find it quite remarkable that uh, I, I got an interest in personal identity, as I mentioned, the late 90s. And since then, it's accelerated. And, and Kevin Van Hooser put it well. I think he said that, uh, that Western cultures uh, suffering from a collective identity crisis. Um, the, the notion of expressive individualism, to be, to be honest, I don't remember when I first came across it, but it has been popularised. Probably people in Christian circles know it through the work of uh, my friend Carl Truman. So mm -hmm. Carl's got a couple of books, um, as you guys probably know, um, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, all about expressive individualism, and then a, a popularised kind of an idiot's guide, um, A Strange New World. Um, mm -hmm. And, yeah, so, so Carl did, the way my work relates to Carl's might be worth mentioning. So Carl really yeah. traces the intellectual roots of expressive individualism, whereas I'm more interested, to extend the metaphor, in, in um, the fruit, the, the mm. fact that it's not working very well, mm. and, and somewhere else to plant yourself. So it's, it's almost a parable I've got there. So you, you've got uh, parables and extended metaphor. So we're, we're not quite there. But uh, yeah, so that, that's the burden of, of my work. Uh, not so much wondering about the philosophical, intellectual roots of expressive individualism, but the much more practical sense of how it's disseminating in popular culture, how it's affecting individuals. And in my view, uh, the negative impacts it's having on individuals and society um, at large. Mm -hmm. So um, when, when do you think you first began to notice uh, most clearly maybe some of these negative effects of this expressive individualism? What, what were some of the things that you began to see in our larger culture uh, or maybe in your even local experience where you began to think there's clearly something really wrong with this and it's not just kind of harmless and innocuous but it's 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 damaging it's devastating uh, well the first thing to say is uh, over the years i've noticed um just how monolithic it's become it's it's become unquestionable if you like um probably in the early 2000s the most common saying you'd hear as advice in popular culture was be true to yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but, but these days it's kind of morphed even further and now it's be yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the kind of hip version is you do you. <laughs> um, so so that, that's been going on and I, I've just been following that. Um, and and I'm, I'm kind of hunter and gatherer. So whenever I see something, <laughs> Um, that relates, I'll, I'll keep it in files and, and come back to it. Uh, in terms of the negative impact, look, everyone's saying that Western culture is in trouble. We're much more tribalised um, and divided. There's, there's a kind of epidemic of things like narcissism and um, uh, outrage culture is spoken of. Um, depression and, and anxiety are on the rise, especially for younger generations. And, and most people put these things down to, well, not everyone has an answer, but those who do put forward an answer think about things like uh, the loss of shared values, the, uh, the decline in trust in institutions like the church and educate, uh, government and so on. Um, not enough mindfulness is sometimes brought up. Uh, the impact of social media. I think all of them 
have something to do with it. But, but I think of them more as symptoms rather than the cause. I, I think the cause really is this, um, what um, I regard as um, a, a really unhelpful narrative that people are being sold, that to find yourself, you just need to look inside yourself, um, focus on something that you find um, defines you, and, and then expect the world to uh, celebrate that identity and uh, regard anyone as getting in the way of expressing your identity, you're kind of living the dream. Um, one sociologist talks about um, um, the utopia complex. Strangely, people, young people are being told that, you know, you can have it all, you should have it all. It's just not true to the human condition or to uh, basic our basic understanding of what it is to be a human being. We're, we're much more socially defined and uh, interconnected with others. This idea that you can uh, focus exclusively on yourself and be a self-made self, invent yourself. Uh, I, I find that there's some benefits to it. So I, I don't want to be completely negative and you can understand why it's arisen. But um, I, I do find overall that it, it's problematic and uh, leading to bad outcomes. How have some of these things maybe impacted the church? Uh, uh, surely we've seen a rise in this sort of uh, marrying of, of Christian teaching with uh, expressive individualism. Have you, have you seen those things come together and in what ways? Um, the, the notion of who you are, personal identity, what defines you, is really at the bottom of what some people call the cultural iceberg. So, so much about us is impacted by this invisible force around us, which we call culture. And uh, a sociologist talks about an iceberg where some things are above the surface, you know, the, uh, things about your tastes in music and food and entertainment and sport. But below the surface are all sorts of things like problem solving uh, approaches, attitudes to authority, parenting, aging. And right at the bottom of the iceberg, I reckon, is this notion of personal identity. So the, the answer is the church has struggled with not being worldly throughout history and in every culture. And I think the West now is struggling exactly with these problems. People have uh, expectations because of expressive individualism um, that are, are, are unhelpful and misguided. I think um, the other side of personal identity that relates to expressive individualism is this notion of story. Hmm. So the idea is that uh, individuals in the West now are living their own uh, self-made stories, when the truth is we live in shared stories. And I think um, the impact on the church is, is profound but hidden. Hmm. So it impacts us in the way we think about um, our own lives, the way we think about our obligations to others. I mean, I think of the saying of Jesus, which is actually in all four Gospels. Uh, it's a remarkable saying because it it's almost sounds as if it was written for our day, namely that um, the one who finds themselves will lose themselves and the one who loses themselves for my sake will find themselves. So, so extraordinary that uh, something could sound so apt and pertinent written 2000 years ago. And it, it just shows again to me the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the inspiration of scripture, if you like. It, it, it's God's word speaking to us in every age. And there are some parts of the Bible that have really jumped out to me as I've done research on personal identity um, that I've never really noticed or or, or seen the significance of in the past. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about the Bible. If, you, if you're in a persecuted nation, then the Bible's teaching on suffering and persecution will be so important to, to you. And in our day, I, I'm, I'm not alone in thinking this because there's several other books that have come out on these topics. Um, the Bible has a lot to say about identity formation, um, about a shared story we're living. Uh, it, it even addresses the big markers of identity that um, are so important to us today, ethnicity, sexuality, gender, um, possessions, age, uh, and so on. Yeah, I, I want to 
follow up because uh, in your context, obviously, uh, it, it's similar to ours in that uh, we we work in institutions that are uh, at least in part uh, designed to train people, equip people for ministry, to think about uh, serving in the church or on the mission field or other other contexts, and so. Um, are there specific ways maybe that you've seen this uh, expressive individualism uh, coming out in, in particular ways among those who are in training for ministry? Or do, you, or do you see that impact at all in particular on future pastors or future missionaries or church leaders? Are there maybe some specific ways that it manifests itself uh, among that particular population? Uh, it's a it, it, good question. Um, I, I think that the solution to the impact of expressive individualism is, is a very positive one. It's 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 taking seriously that we live in the shared story of the life of Jesus Christ. That we we died with Him. Um, our lives are to be stamped by the same self-sacrificial love that He demonstrated on the cross. And then we rise with him to new life and and at, at the second coming, our true identities will be revealed. So you've got that running through. So look, every generation struggles with the notions of self-denial, sacrificial love and so on. And I think um, uh, this generation, the young, younger generations, I should say, because we divide them up so much these days, um, they, they've got unique challenges in this area because the culture is telling us over and over again that um, we should simply celebrate who we are, that um, you do you, follow your heart, those kind of messages mm -hmm. make it very difficult to hear the, the cost of discipleship teaching that is in the New Testament so prominently and, and should impact Christian leaders in particular, of course. Mm -hmm. So I think, look, I'm not um, especially alarmed, if you like, at, at the impact of expressive individualism. I, I think the challenge is the same as it's always been. It's to live, uh, it's, it's about faithful Christian living. And, and I love the fact that so much of what we do in church is really an alternative to the expressive individualist script that we're being sold. So when we say the creed, if you're in that kind of church, it, it's really protest. It's a protest literature by saying, look, I belong to this story, the story mm. of the death, resurrection, and return of Christ. Um, I don't belong to the story of materialism where um, the person with the most toys when they die wins. I, I don't belong to the story of, uh, um, uh, of ever-increasing um, demands for social justice in a way that uh, is unrealistic and ultimately divisive. So, so I think, and, and baptism, I mean, baptism is something all Christians practice, and it's this beautiful illustration of the fact that we die to sin and we are united to Christ and we rise with him to a new way of living and a new destiny. So I think that those kind of teachings actually are very helpful in combating the ill effects of expressive individualism. Yeah, that's that's really helpful, um, and I think that uh, it it's it's just yet one one more argument for the importance of the local church, of being uh, part of a local body of believers, not just you know watching your favorite pastor on a YouTube sermon or, you know, just having your own private devotions, which, you know, obviously that's good and, 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 and healthy, but um, that sort of community uh, formation uh, reminds us of the story that we uh, are to be living in because it's as uh, I think it's Tom Wright who likes to say it, it's the true story of the world. It's the, you know, it's not just a one story among many, that you just kind of, oh, I like that story more than this one. It's, no, this is the true story of the world. And whether you choose to live in alignment with it or in uh, or out of alignment with it, uh, it, that doesn't change the truthfulness of that story. Yeah, and I think um, even that this is something I'm, I'm hoping others will take up. I think we need to 
fly on the board of expressive individualism and take the language that's being used and the advice that's being given and uh, baptize it, if you like. And I, I think Paul give, is an example of this in the New Testament. So when he, when he talks to the Corinthians or uh, um, the Ephesians, he uses different language. In Corinth, he wants to talk about wisdom and spirituality. And uh, really, they're probably terms that were being used in that culture. When he talks about, uh, when he addresses the Ephesians, he's talking about power and magic, those kind of teachings and shows how Christ uh, is the answer to those yearnings. So, so I think in our day, for example, um, authenticity is really important. And what we're looking for is believers to, to live lives in keeping with their new identity in Christ, to be authentic. We should be true to ourselves. We, tr we should be true to our new selves. Mm. And um, I think there's great, um, I think the postmodern emphasis on our lives as stories is another thing we can leverage, if you like. Um, and there's a sense in which um, it's part of our English language. We, we talk about um, starting a new chapter, um, turning over a new leaf. And I, I love the notion of losing the plot. And, and, the, and the great challenge for us as Christians is, is to live the life story of Jesus Christ and not to lose the plot. And I think it's somewhere in the book I talk about uh, the choice in life is between you can you can be the star in your own short story, which probably is going to end up a tragedy or a farce, or you can have a bit part in God's grand plan of redeeming the world. And in the, in the end, it, it's it's a much better option um, uh, uh, than uh, um, I think there's a line in a Pink Floyd song um, about um, you, you exchanged um, a uh, a life in the uh, a life in the cage for a bit part in the war, and and that's really the choice for us all. Wonderful! I, I'm loving just sitting here listening. Uh, this has been this has been wonderful. Um, one of uh, I, I think I think probably the big my my big takeaway from the book, like if I'm I'm holding on to some framework, uh, it's the five tests to the good life. Uh, that was uh, uh, really helpful and really, uh, I, I think, useful. Um, how do you respond to somebody that says, yes, maybe conceptually, Christianity does quite well at passing these tests, but in practice, uh, I, you know, I, I know a lot of Christians that are deeply unhappy. Um, I, I know some that are are so full of pride, they just, they can't even see it. Uh, you, you know, how do you respond to somebody who goes, Actually, I don't think the Christian worldview passes this test any better than expressive individualism. Look, the, the first thing to say is I, I can see your point. <laughs> and, and in our day of globalization and social media, we, we hear about uh, the terrible failures of Christian churches and Christian leaders. And, and it's, it's horribly discouraging, isn't it? <laughs> and and I'm, I'm just terribly sorry for people uh, who've had a bad experience in church context. I've got a couple of um, friends who've left the church and, and the faith because of the behaviour of other Christians. Uh, so I think that's the first thing we should acknowledge, that there, there is a point to this and people have different experiences in church contexts. I guess the thing that keeps me going and encourages me to think that uh, um, the, the, the Christian faith does pass these tests as a way of living is the Bible doesn't gloss over the bad behavior of God's people. Mm. And, and it, it's very blunt and realistic about the human condition. And I, I find that so helpful. I mean, I, it would be very hard to stay a Christian if the Bible saw things through rose-colored glasses, because our lives are not like that. They're disordered. Uh, there is, uh, Jesus said to his own disciples, you being evil. So it's an extraordinarily bleak, as well as bright story in that sense. And then the other thing is it, it gives us the resources for self-critique. And this mm. is what's missing in so much of expressive individualism, that there, there is no sense in which what you find inside yourself needs renovation. It, it's just to be celebrated. And, and, and I don't find that helpful in, in the long run. The other thing I would say is that um, um, in response to what Paul says in Philippians 4, to to, to keep our minds on those things which are beautiful and, and lovely and admirable. And I, I've lived 
in uh, different countries for extended periods in the, in the US, then in England for study, and then worked in Scotland, I had a year in Germany, and then back in Australia. In, in every church, there's been people, just ordinary people, who've been living the life story of Jesus Christ, staying on script, if you like, in ways that I find incredibly encouraging. Just one, one small example, I've got a friend, Bill, who's been struggling with, uh, he, he wants to knock down his house and rebuild. And the neighbor who has this massive house uh, kind of overshadowing his block of land has been holding him up in court for two years in, in the local council deliberations, just terrible um, situation. And then the neighbor's son comes next door and knocks on Bill's door and says, uh, you know, hey, Bill, I've I'm, I'm got some problem with my science homework at college. Can you help me out? Because Bill's an engineer. Hmm. What Bill say? Bill says, "Sure, come on in." Now, now, why is he? Uh, why is he so um, not part of the outrage culture of taking revenge, of holding grudges? Why does he act in this forgiving way and this loving way um, towards, let's say, his adversary's son? And the answer is because he's living the life story of Jesus Christ. He, mm -hmm. he's, he is actually staying on the script. No, no one's going to celebrate that. You're not going to see it in the headlines. But there are a myriad of stories like that where, uh, thank God, uh, there are people who are uh, uh, living in ways that uh, do exhibit the sort of humility and, and love that uh, changes our world for the better. Yeah, that's that's really good and and helpful. Um, I, I think um, I, I, uh, one thing I wanted to ask about is, um, in terms of uh, parents, you know, especially parents of young children, as they're you know very as those formative years are happening, um, are there are there particular things that you might suggest that parents could due to um to offset the effects of the sort of expressive individualism that uh that their children are growing up in it, it that's a really big and difficult question isn't it and mm -hmm. uh, christian people take different approaches to these things i mean um some christians uh would uh take a very defensive strategy and and be in favor of homeschooling and the like or in a very explicitly Christian school context, and, and that might work in some cultures and settings. Um, others um, simply uh, want to continue to have an impact and influence on their children's lives. And uh, of course, that comes through explicit means, reading the Bible every day and praying at the table and so on. But, but I think also, like it or not, it's going to come through modelling Mm -hmm. So the best thing you can do for your children, I think, is is to stay on script yourself. If if we want to continue that analogy, and and uh, the Bible attests that we, and it's true in, in in affirmed by modern psychology, we we learn things by um, having them modelled for us as much as taught to us. The teaching is obviously very important. Yeah. Um, yeah so so I I don't think there's um, a silver bullet, if you like. Um, in, in answer to that question, it's one of the great challenges of life, of course. And uh, um, uh, being a parent is just the most challenging thing <laughs> to do. I mean, if you're going to live the expressive individualist um, life story, I, I don't become a parent. <laughs> because <laughs> because yeah. the, the, there's no way you can uh, live the dream uh, mm -hmm. if you've got uh, children. I mean, it, it's it's by necessity and by definition, um, an act of selflessness uh, to to be a parent and and, and all of us do it uh, imperfectly, of course. Um, but um, in the end, uh, it's a great challenge to um, uh, contradict and and to correct the the messages our society is giving us. But, but it's the challenge for the Christian life. I think of Romans 12 too, where Paul says, don't be conformed, um, but be transformed in, in your behavior to show that God's way of living is the best by having your mind renewed 
So usually when I talk about that, I then say, and the way to do that is to come to Ridley College. Um, <laughs> so as, as a principal, president, provost, uh, I'm, I'm also a salesman. There you uh, go. More seriously, I, I think um, that Christian people do, do need to take whatever opportunities they have um, to have their minds renewed. And uh, we're, not, we're not talking about uh, being an egghead or uh, being a Bible nerd necessarily. Um, some of the uh, most faithful Christian people I've known have not had tertiary education. I haven't gone to college. So, so it's not about that. It's, it's about, I, I love the verse in Hebrews where it says, um, the mature are those who train themselves by constant use mm. of the truths of God's word. So it's not what you know, it's what you use of what you know. I'm kind of straying off track here, but... Uh, <laughs> no, that's really helpful. You've got me going. <laughs> well, you know, when, when you're talking about, you know, if you want to live an expressive individual, in, individual's life, don't have children, it reminds me of a, of a Tim Keller quote uh, where he says, oh my goodness, let me see if I get it right. Uh, uh, parenting will just really knock this out of you because you can't divorce your three-year-old. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Kel Keller's got an excellent book on this. I mean, he's got several things to read. As you guys probably know, I mean, in mm -hmm. um, the reason for God, he deals with identity at one mm -hmm. point, and, and the big book he followed up with—I forget the name—but he's also got this lovely little book called um, "The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness," mm -hmm. and it, it's really uh, riffing off the saying of Jesus I mentioned earlier about uh, finding yourself. It's, it's such a wonderful paradox, isn't it? That uh, somehow focusing on serving uh, the Lord Jesus and others secures you uh, a stable and satisfying sense of self um, whereas uh, relentlessly uh, living the dream and and following your heart uh, actually will result in 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 losing yourself it, it's mm -hmm. it's a beautiful uh, um, saying I think well and I think too it's um, it it just seems so utterly exhausting to try to live as an expressive individualist. When you think about the constant, you are constantly responsible for essentially creating your identity. And there's the, there's the constant, uh, you know, sort of pressure to present yourself to the world in a certain way. And um, that just seems exhausting by contrast. You know, it's, you, you have Jesus, basically calling all the weary to himself and just saying, take my yoke upon you for it's, for it's easy. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a remarkable contrast. There's a freedom that comes from surrendering to our identity in Christ and just saying, this is who I am. Uh, and this is who God has made me to be. And I don't have to bear the weight of identity creation because i because God is the one who's defined who I am and how I yep. should live. No, I think that's right. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a little quote. Uh, Dr. Taylor Swift, that's not a joke. So Taylor <laughs> Swift uh, got an honorary doctorate from New York University earlier this year. Right. And she right. said, I love this. She says, we're so many things all the time. And I know it can be overwhelming figuring out who to be. I have some good news. It's totally up to you. <laughs> I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. So it's exactly what you said, Matt. There, there's this fragility that comes with with the uh, um, the, the movement, and mm -hmm. and in the end, it, it's it's not possible because we're social beings. We're we're not kind of soaring eagles eyeing our prey from a great height. We're we're honking geese, and we fly best when we're in formation. Because yeah. there's this indissoluble ties, interdependence with other people. And, and, and life, look, every version of the good life comes to this eventually and says that uh, it's your connection and relations, connections and relationships uh, that make the good life. And as believers, we think ultimately that's right. But in addition, the, the relationship that really defines us is this notion that God our Father knows us intimately and, and personally. Yeah, I I love that we just went from Tim Keller uh, to Taylor Swift. Uh, that's uh, excuse me, Doctor Taylor Swift and Doctor Tim Keller. Um, 
you know, I mean, look, look, I, I, I'm kind of getting a sneering vibe I'm giving here. Let me let me just quickly say, look, expressive individualism is understandable because it's got three big benefits. One is self-reflection. Of course, mm-hmm. you should you, you should know what your gifts are and uh, what your aspirations in life are. Well, the, the examined life is a good thing. So mm-hmm. that that's, should go without saying, but it's worth saying. And the other thing is, I think inclusion is a valid notion. It just needs to be carefully defined, of course. But there are groups in society who define themselves by their ethnicity, say, um, and, and, and they have been marginalised in Western cultures to a, to a certain extent. And they're looking for recognition and inclusion. And I think um, that's part of the thing that drives the movement. And the other thing is authenticity, as we said. Uh, being true to yourself, being authentic is, is a good thing. But but you, you've got to ask yourself, uh, um, uh, who am I, what am I being true to? There's this beautiful quote from uh, Francis Fukuyama, the uh, American uh, political scientist, where he says that uh, the selves we are celebrating might be lazy and nasty and um, and all sorts of other horrible things. So, so the idea that we look inside, find ourselves and celebrate, it, it's just not true to human nature. All, all of us have things about us, as Jesus said, of course, in our hearts that, that need to be um, corrected. Yeah, I, I, that part of your comment there made me think back to um, one of my earlier questions about where do we see this in uh, where do we see expressive individualist coming individualism coming out in uh, people who are aspiring towards ministry? And I know both John and I, and I'm sure you've had this experience as well, where you have someone who uh, thinks they are being called towards ministry or want to pursue ministry, but there's no sort of external confirmation from, uh, believers around them or encouragement from a pastor or a church or a small group of believers who are are saying, absolutely, we see this. We see that God has given you gifts and he's producing fruit in your life. And so we are fully on board with you pursuing this. We We come across students who don't have that. And I think it can be challenging sometimes to evaluate even is this someone who is going to be fit for ministry or is this really the Lord leading you in this direction? Or do you have uh, maybe some wrong motives for wanting to pursue ministry? Do you see that in your own context as well? Yeah. And I think when I, when I talk about calling, I say exactly what you said then, Matt, namely that there's an internal conviction mm-hmm. that um, I want to serve God in this way and God wants me to do it. Uh, but there, there has to be this external corroboration and support and uh, affirmation as well. And, and uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, the expressive individualist movement, I think one of the ways you might see it with um, people coming through seminary or college would be this idea of uh, the church planting uh, phenomenon. Now, now, there's lots of good things about it. But, but it can come with this idea, look, I'm an independent person. I don't need any help from anyone else. I don't need to become an apprentice under some other minister. What would they know anyway? I can just go out there and, and change the world. And, and, and it, it's got this triumphalistic edge if we're not careful. Yeah. Um, so I think um, that, that might be one specific example where we're simply not patient enough uh, to go through um, the hard yards of... Uh, formation, as you said, in a local church context under the authority of, of someone else. I mean, the, one of the tenets of expressive individualism is a rejection of all external authority. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I haven't done much work on this, but it would be worth looking at the Bible's teaching on authority. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, whenever you look into these things, it's much more nuanced than you first expect. Uh, but But it is an area where um, if if our students are coming with that um, unstated, even invisible assumption, that there's going to be a lot of um, potholes in their journey of Christian service. If if there's uh, just no uh, no willingness to submit ourselves to authority, all, all of us have to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it, it's something that's now countercultural in a really big way. Yeah. 
what what are uh, if if our listeners want to go a bit deeper into reading about expressive individualism uh, and how to live as faithful Christians in the midst of a culture that is uh, expressive individualistic, uh, where where would you might point them? What are two or three resources other than yeah. your own book, obviously? <laughs> um, uh, David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, is. Um, Someone I, I, I really respect, and I've never met him, but in terms of his writing, he's got, he's got a, a book called The Social Animal, and mm-hmm. it, it's brilliantly, it brilliantly underscores the, uh, uh, the, the social nature of human existence. Um, he's got a book on character as well. He wrote a book recently called The Two Mountains. He had his own identity crisis. He was a friend of Tim Keller's, by the way. So I think mm-hmm. if you're looking for someone who um, isn't... Um, on board as a Christian, but but writes uh, really insightfully about social trends and psychology and the like. He calls himself a border stalker. So at one point in one of his books, he says the Beatitudes of Jesus are, um, are morality sublime. So I think he, he, he really understands the distinctiveness mm-hmm. and the contribution of Christian heritage. He's not quite there yet himself, but, but I'd certainly recommend uh, reading uh, some of, uh, of David Brooks. Um, there's been a bunch of other books come out recently. I think um, um, Trevin Wax has got a book on identity. Uh, I saw a recent book uh, called Don't Be True to Yourself um, by one of, uh, one of the Gospel Coalition leaders. Um, I forget his name. So I haven't read too many of them. Um, but, but, but I think um, that there'll be plenty of resources in the future, it seems, so the, the main recommendation I would have would be um, um, if you really want to dig into the topic, then um, knowing something about psychology and anthropology is helpful. And David Brooks is a, is a kind of friendly popularizer of, of those insights. Well, I, I'll let you know what uh, one, one, of, one of Matt's running jokes on the podcast is how much I love Tim Keller and David Brooks uh, oh, as authors. So. <laughs> Uh, you're 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 hitting the bingo card pretty hard uh, in the second of the choir. Yeah. Well, when we when we start when I started reading through your book and started to see quotes from David Brooks and Tim Keller, I'm like, oh goodness, this is just <laughs> right in John Sloat's sweet spot right here. So, um, yeah. I want to. Uh, I want to mention to our listeners some of the other things you've written. You're you're a prolific uh, author and scholar, and uh, we, we've already mentioned your book, Known by God, A Biblical Theology of Personal Identity. Um, that goes a little bit deeper into the biblical foundations of personal identity and is uh, uh, a really good resource. But uh, you've written extensively on uh, many other areas, including... Uh, I've always appreciated your book, uh, Paul and the Law, Keeping the Commandments of God in the New Studies in Biblical Theology uh, series. Uh, I think it's one of the more helpful treatments of that uh, very complex topic, as, as you well know. So um, if, if our listeners are interested in kind of diving into that, that's one of the first few books on the subject that I'll point people to. Um, also, you wrote a commentary in First Corinthians with Roy Chiampa in the Pillar series. How, how, by the way, how do you write a commentary? I, I understand how you co-author other kinds <laughs> of books, but a commentary seems very uh, challenging in my mind to co-author. So just briefly, how did you do that? Well, most of Paul's letters are co-authored in one sense, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it's a conversation. That 1 Corinthians, or as you guys say, 1 Corinthians, is um, it, it's a conversation with the church. Um, I think what, one of my challenges as a scholar is I'm an extrovert. So, so I don't like sitting on my own for weeks on end or even days on end in my study. And, and Roy Champer and I, um, Roy was one of my doctoral students in Aberdeen. Mm-hmm. And such a good friend. Uh, we, we would have supervisions where we wouldn't even get to his topic. So we, we <laughs> meet, start talking, and, uh, oh, we'll have to have another meeting. Yeah, so I think um, um, I, I'm collaborative by nature. I, I just realise I have my own um, 
shortcomings. And Roy, Roy in this case, assume we're talking about that commentary, it, it, mm -hmm. he has complementary skills. He's a brilliant linguist mm -hmm. and um, he, he just looks under every stone. And we, we just went back and forward. It, it was a great experience. We, to, to answer your question specifically, we had two weeks sitting together kind of working out the structure and argument of the letter, which turned out to be a New Testament studies article. And then we had some time at the end as well, where we went over each other's work extensively. So, yes, I, I, it was a joy uh, to work together. We've got plans for two other big books. So uh, <laughs> watch this space. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, you're one of the uh, co-editors as well of the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. That came out a little while ago now, but still a fabulous resource for um, those interested in biblical theology. Um, and we will we'll go ahead and put a link to your uh, bio page uh, on your website, and people can look at your CV and see things you've written. And uh, I noticed it did have a section where you've got stuff you're currently working on uh, as well. So, um, but we need to move on. Normally, we do our today in sports history. We're going to skip that, and we're just going to jump to our one thing you liked. And Brian has been gracious enough uh, to uh, contribute to that. So Abba, John, how about you go first? Yep. And then I'll go and then we'll we'll, we'll let Brian uh, have the last word on one thing he liked this week. So go ahead, John. Okay. So I am in the middle of preparing and when this episode drops, I'll be a week away uh, from starting, but I, I am preparing for a Sunday school class at our uh, local church on church history doing most of church history in about seven weeks. And uh, so I've been dipping back into the book After Acts, Exploring the Lives and Legends of the Apostles uh, by Brian uh, Lifton. Uh, and that's been uh, that's been wonderful to jump back into that. And I find it to be a really helpful resource uh, and uh, something that's uh, accessible to the to the lay person. So uh, yeah, that's one thing I like this week. And one neat feature of that book is at the end of every chapter, he has like a like a grade card yes. where he basically looks at the traditions surrounding a biblical figure and says, okay, so how likely do we think it is that this particular apostle ended up taking the gospel to this area? And he kind of gives a, like a, a grading scale of A to F in terms of how likely that is. So what's yeah. what's funny is I bring up that grading scale in my church history class. And for the rest of the class, students will go, so is that like an A, a B, a C, or a D in likelihood of happening? And I, mm -hmm. you know, I get a little deer in headlights and uh <laughs> usually say I don't know. Yes. Well, I'm also gonna go with a book. Um, I am currently reading uh a book called Scribes and Scripture. The Amazing Story of How We Got the Bible. It's John Mead and Peter Gurry. Uh, it's a crossway book, and it is uh, a very accessible, accessible uh, entry point into basic issues of, um, as, as the title would say, how we got the Bible. So it deals with textual criticism. It deals with issues related to canon. And they do a great job of just explaining it in a very user-friendly way but not in an overly simplistic way. Sometimes you mm. get books like that and you think, oh, that's way too simplified and not quite accurate to the complexity of the issue. But uh, they do a nice job of acknowledging complexity and yet presenting it in a uh, straightforward and simple way that even the, the, the non-Bible student can, I think, appreciate and, and benefit from. So um, I, would, uh, I would warmly... Uh, recommend that. So, all right, Brian, what about you? One thing you liked this week? Uh, I'm going to talk about something much more serious, and that's uh, test cricket. So, yes. <laughs> uh, the pinnacle of test cricket for an Australian is what's called the Ashes series. And have you got 20 minutes, or will I just do a brief version? <laughs> we will. So, I mean, that's been a running joke on the pod, our sort of strange fascination with cricket and our lack of understanding of how it works. And so yeah. you have so, the floor open to you as long as you'd like to talk. <laughs> so, look, the uh, a test match, believe it or not, goes for five days, six hours of play a day. And, uh, um, and 
the test series is where you have five test matches, five days each, and the one I'm talking about is between England and Australia. So obviously we, we have history with England and uh, there's a, a very friendly but intense rivalry. And the Ashes, believe it or not, are um, it goes back to a point, there's a bit in the history where they burnt the stumps and the Ashes are now kept in this tiny little urn. And that's the trophy. You get to take the Ashes as uh, a way of... Uh, um, remembering that you that you won that series. And the reason it's so exciting this week is the five-day test finished yesterday morning for me. When I went to bed, the first session of the day had been rained out and Australia had a daunting task to score a couple of hundred more runs and they only had like seven wickets left. I don't know if you understand any of this, but uh, <laughs> they ended up winning just like 20 balls to go after the five days and uh, one with just two wickets in hand. It was just so exciting. I can see the glee on your faces as well. And, uh, and uh, Pat Cummins for president is what I now say, because uh, he's the Australian captain who uh, scored the winning runs. So in that rivalry between England and Australia, do the is one side... T tend to dominate that rivalry more than the other, or is it pretty even even handed in terms of it, history? It can go back and forth. Look, the the, the English, as we would call them in a, a affectionate way, the Poms. The Poms kind of like to lose in a way. It, it's what they expect. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but uh, look, we we won the last Ashes series, and we're one up in this one. So let, let's just leave it at that. Okay. All right. One of these days, we are going to sit down and we're going to figure out how cricket works, and we're going to find some stuff on YouTube, and we're just we're, we're going to become we're, we're going to become cricket fans. It's going to <laughs> Look, happen. Matt, Matt and John, open invitation. Come to Melbourne at the right time of the year. I'll take you to a cricket match. Oh, we would love that. I uh, I love that idea. The podcast on the road, Matt. The or, podcast or in England. Yeah. yeah, or in England, we we can meet up there. It, it's very unlikely, but who knows. Hey, uh, we, John and I do lead uh, trips together sometimes for our Grace College students. And so, and we've been to, we've actually been to both Australia and I've taken a group and we've taken a group to England as well. So it's not mm -hmm. unprecedented. There we go. Yep. I think that's the way to do it. You need to sit there for six hours to really take it in. My, my <laughs> grandfather, I'll give you one more anecdote. Um, uh, my grandfather was from Austria. And my father took him to a cricket test match in Sydney. This is before I was born, I think. And after the first two hours, he asked my father, when does it start? <laughs> <laughs> so it can be pretty slow. Let me warn you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we appreciate you coming on the podcast, Brian. Um, we're so appreciative of your work. Mm -hmm. um the book was excellent and uh it's something that uh i know both john and i have talked about uh what other contexts are we in where we could um encourage people to read it or even incorporate uh some of the insights in there into uh courses that we teach or things we do uh at grace or in the church and other contexts so well, that's uh, really encouraging thanks so much matt yeah. And John, um, obviously, um, when you're an author, you, you just hope that uh, your book will be useful to someone and, and help them in some regard. So that's lovely to hear. Thank you. Yes. All right, John, we have talked lots of stuff about expressive individualism. We have talked about a uh, book that you are reading, a book that I'm reading, and we've talked about cricket. This is the most extensive cricket discussion we have had on the podcast in all 183 episodes. Yes, yes. And so I think by definition, we have covered our various and sundry topics. And all that's left to say is, until next time, the Lord bless you all real good. Later. Later.